Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner, the final podcast of 2021. Now, Charlie High bestrode public life in Ireland for about four decades from the late 50s. And then in retirement, he was back front and centre with shocking revelations emerging about the millions which he had received from various sources when he was a senior politician. Professor Gary Murphy of the School of Politics in DCU has written a comprehensive and I have to say a compelling account of High's life. Gary had access to his subject's personal papers, which were all donated to DCU, and he also brought to the project his own deep knowledge and insights into politics in this country as it has evolved in the latter half of the last century. Many will consider High's ultimate legacy as wholly negative. Others will perhaps prefer to credit him for the positive contributions he made to the country at various stages of his career. One way or the other, his presence was compelling and his story including his parentage, span the foundation of the state to the turn of the century, when I think it's fair to say that Ireland took its place among the wealthy nations of the world. Gary Murphy joins us now to talk about the life of Charlie High. Gary, one of the aspects to Charlie High, I think that it was perhaps well known, but not as much acknowledged, particularly in later years, and those of us who would have come to him as a character when he'd further on life, was his beginnings. Now, he was very much from a working class, and for somebody at that point, in terms of education and all, when he rose during the 40s and 50s, it was a pretty big leap to come from that background up to UCD, found an accountancy firm, and so early on be such a prominent figure in Fianna Fáil. Yeah, so his, his background is, uh, we might describe it best as maybe straightened or, or modest. He lived in Belton Park Road from the age of seven. Belton Park Road in the suburbs of the north side of Dublin, Donny Carney. He lived in a private development, an enclave surrounded by public corporation houses. And, you know, I spoke to his brother, Owen Hockey, and now deceased about, about their childhood. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there was no real demarcation between public and private. It was working class, maybe aspirational, lower middle class. Some people around there had certainly sort of uh, civil service type jobs, uh, lots of trades, uh, small shopkeepers uh, and the like. But his father was very ill for, for pretty much all of Hockey's uh, life. He was invalided out of the... Irish Army, to use the word at the time, in 1928. He was a very strong Republican, Johnny Hockey, as was his wife, Sarah McWilliams. They met during the War of Independence when Johnny Hockey was on the run. I visited Swatra in South Derry, would be strong Republican country to this day. And there was a, there's a kind of the remnants of a trench in Swatra where Johnny Hockey and it was Hockey's cousin uh, Seamus McWilliams was my sort of guide for a day or two when I was up there a few years ago uh, he showed me the, the, the remnants of the trench where uh, Johnny Hockey and his comrades uh, camped out and where Sarah McWilliams would bring them food and, and clothing a strong Republican uh, area and that feeds into Hockey's lifelong genuine Republicanism Was it unusual for somebody from that background from Derry and that area to, to go on the free state side um 
in the civil war? It was for, for the most part unusual, but there was a few like uh, like uh, Johnny Hawhey, and he had a uh, he had a reputation as being a very uh, skilled operative in in the arts of uh, guerrilla warfare. One might say, to use a more current phrase, but a lot of them were devoted to Collins, you know, and, and Collins is the ultimate army man, um, and so a lot of people did go to the Collins side, but but most people from sort of South Derry would be strongly anti-treaty. And he's in the Irish Army then, Johnny Hawhey, up to 1928. But he has what we call now multiple cirrhosis. I mean, there he was diagnosed with having nerves, bad nerves. Um, but as we now know, it was, it was basically a MS. Uh, the family had moved around a little bit. They were in Mead. They had a farm, a small farm uh, in Dunshockland, the Riggins. But in 1930. Three, they moved to, to Belton Park. Uh, Hahi's brother, Owen Hahi, the youngest of, of seven. Uh, there are four boys and three girls. Uh, he, for instance, never saw his father walk. So uh, Sarah McWilliams, a strong woman, uh, would lift the infirm Johnny Hahi up and down the, the stairs uh, to feed him. She wanted him out of bed to give him some sort of routine in terms of feeding him. And then when uh, Charles Hahi uh, Porrick, sometimes known as Jock, Sean and, and Owen got older, they were they lifted the father up and down uh, the stairs. So it it's straightened, it's difficult. Um but nevertheless, you know, she was a powerful woman, Sarah McWilliams. She was able to like, you know, support them and encourage them. And education was a big the Lahi nineteen thirty eight comes first of five hundred boys in the Dublin Corporation Scholarship exam. There's a Nice picture, I think, in the book, which uh, from taken from the Irish Press of uh, August thirty eight, showing Cahalhahi Belton Park first of five hundred. That allows him to go to famously Joey's in Fairview, St Joseph's of Fairview, famously known as Joey's, to do his secondary education. His elder brother Sean had come second in the scholarship exam the year before, so they were very bright, uh, very sharp uh, young men by all accounts. And then Joey's is a formative influence because. He thought about leaving early and Joey's is an interesting because they don't have a leaving cert class until I think 1941. Hockey's is leaving cert in 43. Um, and in those days, unlike now, you, you sort of chose on the day in UCD what you were going to do. It's not like the CAO, no. Uh, and Hockey chose Commerce because his friend, Harry Boland, uh, with a lifelong friendship and they, as you mentioned, McDay went into the uh, an accountancy firm together. Um, his brother, Boland's elder brother, had, was involved in accountancy and sort of promised in a, in a kind of a vague way that there was a future career here. So Cahy does commerce in UCD. He is an outsider. There are not terribly many from the north side of Dublin going to UCD and Earlsford Terrace in the first place. Most of them are paying fees. Cahy's uh, on a scholarship and that... I think sometimes we can take the sort of outsider motif a bit too far. How uh, he was never hung up about that's class. The that's the interesting thing, thing I thought, yeah. yeah, because what really comes across is coming from that background, and in particularly moving into that other milieu, uh, a lot of middle classes it was yeah, yeah. Uh, in Dublin or some what have you, that there is no sign anywhere that there's a lack of self-confidence, which is a fantastic attribute for somebody like him to have. And I suppose you're back there to his mother, to the family home, notwithstanding the father's illness and the fact that as you say both of them fought in the war of independence yet here to some extent because of the illness they were thrown the scrap people like a lot of other people who'd fought in the war of independence Oh very much so and uh, and both their pension records uh, which are online uh, show the difficulty particularly uh, his mother Sarah McWilliams had in, in getting a half decent uh, pension and also in getting services for her ill husband who had served the state 
you know, and that is a black mark on, on the state, not just the hockeys, but, uh, you know, whole cadre of, of people. But, you know, unlike a lot of people who sort of go to university, maybe I'm including myself here, I went in the mid-1980s uh, from the sort of inner city Cork. Uh, oh, UCC was only 10 minutes away from me, but it was like a different world, really. But anyway, how you never had any hang-ups in UCD. He instantly fitted in. He joins the debating club uh, straight away. He becomes the secretary of the sort of Commerce and Economic Society. He's a champion debater, as is his girlfriend, the later wife, Maureen Lamas. She's a champion debater uh, herself. Uh, he meets her there uh, in the bicycle sheds. Uh, she knew Harry Boland because Boland and Lamas were, you know, sort of Fianna Fáil um, royalty. He hung about then with people like Boland, uh, George Colley and other sons of sort of the Fianna Fáil uh, revolutionary uh, class. And that brings him into the Fianna Fáil milieu for the first time. He's interested in politics in his sort of, uh, in his teenage days, but he's not obsessed about it by any means. But once he, uh, you know, once he is advances in UCD, uh, he's there for a few years in the mid-1940s. He comes second in the in the BCOM. Uh, he wins various prizes as he goes uh, along. He's becoming much more interested in, in politics and obviously his friendship, courtship and ultimate uh, uh, engagement and marriage to, to Maureen Lemass uh, cements that. I try to, I think, uh, debunk this idea in the book that how he married Maureen Lemass for advancement in, in Fianna Fáil uh, because I met her once in 2014 when I started out on, on this book. She was a formidable woman in her own self and I tried to give her some agency back. The idea that she would have married him for his benefit in Fianna Fáil is just ludicrous yeah. in my view and uh, unfair on her. But he does mix with that sort of generation uh, of uh, young up-and-coming uh Fianna Fáilers who are sons of Fianna Fáil uh, royalty to use that uh, <laughs> unrepublican word um, and that sets him up then in 1948 it's an important year Fianna Fáil lose power for the first time in 16 years but it's the first time hockey is involved uh, he started he canvasses for the uh, uh, in Dublin North East the candidates are Oscar Trainer uh, and uh, Harry Colley uh, George Colley's uh, father uh, and he would he would end up taking his seat a number of years later. But he then has a very difficult run in the nineteen fifties where he's a he's a perennial loser in elections. As I suppose for a lot of people to start to oh, know, yeah. it's, not, it's not that unusual. What really comes across to me, Gary, in the book is in his various um, portfolios when he was a minister for agriculture and for justice in particular in the sixties. And this is a time, of course, Lamas, as you mentioned, he uh, was responsible, along with T.K. Whitaker for this opening up of the economy. You, you were looking outwards rather than inwards. And it would strike me that in that milieu, he was the absolute right man in the right place because in some ways he was quite brilliant at the role of managing portfolios in, in, uh, in the government. Uh, he was, yeah. He runs for a number of occasions in the 50s and he's uh, he's unsuccessful. Uh, he finally makes a breakthrough in 1957. In the 50s, his father-in-law, uh, Sean Lamas, did send him uh, around the... Uh, on, on a tour, basically, of uh, of Cumann, all across... Uh, Fianna Fáil Cumann, all across Ireland. Uh, bad roads, Donegal, West Cork, Kerry, Wexford, all over the country, really. Um, you know, so his father recognises that he has quite uh, serious ability and they're, they're, I don't think nepotism is quite the right word, but, you know, 
obviously knows uh, his, uh, his son-in-law of Hoy and Maureen Lamar married, married in 1951 and recognised what is clearly a, a, a talent. Again, Hoy, uh no uh, problems with uh, uh, self-promotion. He writes uh, to the General Secretary Fianna Fáil uh, on his first election to say, I have... Uh, I am particularly able to speak for the party in economics and finance. And many people weren't able to speak for Fianna Fáil uh, there. Uh, he's appointed Parliamentary Private Secretary Minister for State in 1961 to Oscar Trainer, his constituency a colleague, rival. Um, and then he's made Minister for Justice um, in, in a reshuffle. And uh, he's a very energetic, innovative uh, minister, famously the Succession Act, which is often talked about, but it's important. I think people perhaps don't appreciate the enormity of that at the time, Gary. Yeah, I mean, Ireland was a very patriarchal uh, society and, uh, you know, women, um, uh, wives could be literally written out of the... Um, of any succession to the uh, to the family home. Uh, Hawhey was on record as saying that he found the idea that his mother... Uh, could have been that family home could have been sold for out from under her abhorrent and uh, and he was involved now the final legislation is passed by his successor Brian Lenehan when he moved to agriculture in 1964 in a, in a Lamas reshuffle uh, but that was a genuine piece of uh, reform uh, an innovative reform um, the civil service the Department of Justice wasn't necessarily against it uh, but it was very slow moving and it did take uh, a radical, innovative, energetic, uh, political hand uh, to make it work. And I think that's important. The other thing I would say, you know, it's at the sort of opposite end of the spectrum, is even something like the death penalty. Hoy is responsible for the abolition of the death penalty. He's the minister in charge. And while the death penalty stays on the books uh, right up until the 1980s for capital offences, murder of guards, as you, you yourself have written so eloquently about, um you know that uh, most of those offences were commuted anyway but he was he was appalled he had visited the, the death cell in Mountjoy uh, prison and uh, just was appalled by the general uh, uh, sort of atmosphere there and in a progressive outward looking society how he was of the view as many were that uh, but some not in the Department of Justice that uh, there was no place for something like the death penalty but there's a whole other range of civil legislation there's changes in tort uh, you know there, there's a lot going on when he is his minister and uh, and he drives the civil servants very hard and he has a kind of a work ethic like his uh, like his father-in-law Lamas I mean uh, he is kind of curt straightforward he arrives does his business goes could do a bit more of that these days. <laughs> probably could, but he has a very, you know, because his father-in-law and Lamas had the same thing and they weren't much, either, either of them were not ones for uh, for small talk and they weren't hanging around the bars of Leinster House or anything uh, like that. Uh, but he is very he is very innovative and reforming an important figure in the uh, in justice. And then he goes to agriculture. He's not as successful there and one adapting is this huge draw with the National Farmers Association. And they had massive power at that time. They had massive power. They were mostly associated with Fiat Fianna Gael, um, Fianna Fallers, you saw often accuse uh, the uh, the NFA of being uh, blue shirts on tractors, uh, <laughs> which was a famous phrase used in, in Fianna Fáil uh, at, the, uh, at the time. Um, and that is very difficult for him, I write, of an incident in Athlone where he, he, the, the car he is in is uh, surrounded by angry uh, protesters as he's making uh, finishing a speech in the Prince of Wales Hotel uh, in Athlone. And it became a very, that was a very difficult strike. It was only actually resolved and when Hyde was moved out, uh, he was promoted basically from agriculture uh, to finance. And finance is a big, important step forward. It puts him much closer to the sort of uh, the top job. And how he wanted a top job, he was desperately ambitious. 
there's no point saying otherwise. He was maybe ruthlessly ambitious, but he was very ambitious. And, you know, he knew Le Mans uh, wouldn't be around for, for very much longer. Uh, and in 66, when the vacancy, uh, when Le Mans decides to uh, to retire, uh, Hockey does consider running, uh, but ultimately uh, doesn't. But it always makes me think, you know, no one ever talks about the, the ambition of George Colley, for instance, uh, to be leader of Fianna Fáil, or no one talks about the ambition of Gareth Fitzgerald to be leader of Fianna Gael or whatever. I mean, Colley forced, who was the same age as Hockey, but more junior in terms of uh, parliamentary experience, he forced the, the leadership election of 66, which he lost to uh, to Jack Lynch. Hockey had decided not to run. Um, I write about this in the, uh, in the book. Uh, and when Lynch wins, he makes Hockey his minister uh, for finance and he's pretty much at the pinnacle there. He's like in his, uh, you know, he's barely just over 40 years of age and he's, and he wants to do a lot with, uh, with, uh, with the tiller. And then we come to the big issue. Well, one of the big issues, obviously, in his career, the arms. Yeah. Tr- the arms crisis, I suppose. And, it's, and the arms trial. And the arms trial subsequently. Yeah. Now, it has been gone over a lot and I suppose in its most basic form, and I suppose we have to remember it was 50 years ago, some people want to have, well, only have a vague notion what it was, yeah, but yeah. we're talking about um, when everything exploded in the north, there was a question of what should be done down here. Ultimately, there was an attempt to import arms, yeah. and it was a question of who exactly had authorised that and who hadn't. And Every, who knew what was in the shipment, exactly. which is a big point. Uh, yeah. And then what, what ultimately came out in the wash was that... Uh, Hahi, uh, Neil Blaney was the third man fired from the cabinet. Uh, no, well, Kevin Boland. Kevin resigned. No, no, he, he resigned. He resigned in, in, in he resigned. sympathy with the... Yeah, exactly. And, and the, there was initially charges against Hahi and Blaney. Those against Blaney were dropped. And what it ultimately ended with was Charles Hahi being charged and put on trial in the Dublin Circuit Criminal Court, I think it was, mm. with this plan to import arms. He was acquitted... It's an extraordinary story. It even, is. E- even the way you tell it there. Yeah, it, it I is. Mean, it's quite it's amazing. amazing. Ha- it. Yeah, okay. So he was like, so 1969, August 69, the troubles erupt in Derry. They spread to Belfast. There's chaos, uh, not just in Northern Ireland, but in the reaction in the, in the Republic. Uh, and Fianna Fáil are caught unawares, as is the whole country. Uh, and there is outrage, as I write in the book, some correspondence to Hockey uh, from ordinary people saying, you know, Fianna Fáil and the government must do something. Just to revert very quickly, I mean, Hockey has a very successful period from 66 to 69 as Minister for Finance. For the first time, the country is in uh, in surplus. He has a budget surplus. He does in- innovative things like free travel, free electricity. Uh, for pensioners, the artist uh, tax exemption, uh, which was resisted uh, as was free travel uh, by, by, by someone like Ken Whitaker, who Hockey had a difficult relationship with. Uh, and Whitaker was used that his ministers would do what Whitaker told them, and uh, how he wasn't like that with any of his civil servants. Uh, but he is at the at practically the, the zenith of his career, and it all goes spectacularly pear shaped when he is um, in 19, April of 1970. Uh, he has the famous fall off the horse allegations that he was beaten up by a jealous uh, husband uh, you know as I write in a footnote in the book you know it depends where you read it's either West Dublin North Dublin Ongar or some other part of Mead all I can say is that both Maureen Lemass and uh, Eamon Mulhern in, I interviewed them it's the, uh, daughter. the daughter and they said they were there on the day and they saw it happen and he was moved from Abbeville to the matter in an ambulance that is a matter of public record so anyway Lynch interviews him in hospital 
what did he know? Hottie Blaney, uh, Joe Brennan, and Parik Faulkner were were put in charge of it. There was a little committee about finance. Wrong ministers. Yeah, and there's a, there, there's a subcommittee about how to, how to use emergency money basically to help uh, distressed citizens in the, the North. That committee only ever met once, and Hottie did have his, his sort of hand on the Twitter. He's famously hands on uh, minister. And then Lynch questions him in uh, April 70. And then fires him the f- a few weeks later when he is out of hospital, but still he's, he's like he's infirm. He's not he's not at his desk. Uh, and the question is then Michael Heaney, you know who I uh, who reviewed this book in the Dublin Review of Books uh, last week in a mostly positive, but you know some somewhat critical uh, review. And you know as you know yourself, you go into the bear pit, you take your chances. Um, he's written very eloquently and well. I think in his book, the plot that never was. David Burke and one or two others have have entered into this really murky and complex. Case so there was a plot to import arms, uh, or there was a, a plan. Uh, Heaney says the plot that never was. Uh, it depends. Did Hockey know that these were arms, uh, and also did he or did he not know uh, were these arms going to go to the provisionals, uh, or were they for the Irish army? And his defence was that a he didn't know they were arms, and b he assumed that anything that was coming in was for the lawful protection. And of, that's the other, the other issue is did the minister for defence Jim Gibbons well, know? Did the Taoiseach Jack Lynch? Yeah, know? and and someone like Heaney would 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 basically say they did. Uh, I kind of exonerate Hockey for the most part because I don't think make the evidence is there to suggest that Hockey and Blaney, which was to charge politically, were running an alternative government out of. Leinster House. I mean, he wasn't close to Lynch. He didn't have a tremendous respect for Lynch uh, intellectually. He thought Lynch was lazy. They have a row when Lynch is Minister for Finance and Hockey is Minister for Agriculture about subsidies uh, and about payments of farmers. Um, but the evidence, it's, it's a stretch to think that there was something, uh, that there was an alternative uh, government going on. No. David McCullen, another generous review in RT, says that I, I'm too generous to Hockey because he was famously hands-on and, you know, it, the beggars start to believe that he wouldn't have known. Uh, I kind of go by the evidence as best I can. But what does happen is Hockey is, uh, the guards come to Abbeville, they, they question him uh, with his solicitor, Pat O'Connor, uh, who was very close confidant politically of Hockey's for Famously, for Pat O'Connor, Pat, Pat, Pat O'Connor, O'Connor because the man there was, was voted twice. Yeah, once, although yeah. I, I, but as you know, the judge also yeah, did, did yeah, throw out that yeah, charge. Yeah. Uh, and I, I spoke to Pat O'Connor's daughter, Neve. She was one of my many interviews for this uh, book. Um, but that's an important meeting in Abbeville because at the end of it, uh, O'Connor asks uh, the chief superintendent Fleming, you know, what what's happening now and. Uh, Fleming says something along the lines of, well, you know, our investigations are ongoing. There's no expectation from Hockey or O'Connor that he will be arrested. And then before we know it, a few days later, they're back and they arrest him and uh, and he's charged. And Hockey forevermore thought that this was a political charge, that Lynch and, and Colm Condon is the Attorney General. There's no DPP, as you know, at the time. It, the decision is taken by the Attorney General. I mean, there's no evidence to say that the Attorney General did what Lynch told him, but that was always Hockey's uh, suspicion. He thought this was a nothing but a political charge. And then in circumstances that are still slightly unclear, uh, the charges against Blaney were dropped. Now, we do know that Blaney was certainly in... in uh, he, he was... Uh, the other people charged are Captain James Kelly, the Army officer, uh, John Kelly, a Belfast Republican, uh, and Albert Lux, who was based a Belgian sort of uh, import exporter, who was the, the sort of the go between. Uh, but we know that Blaney had 
substantial dealings with all those three individuals where Hockey had much less. The charge against Blaney are dropped, but against Hockey there's two trials. The first one is uh, collapses. Um, and the after literally a week, and then Hockey is uh, is on trial. And it's I mean, and what I think other writers who've entered this murky business don't quite uh, under. It's not it's not that they don't understand, but but what interested me was Hockey the man. I mean, yeah. here he is. He's forty five years of age. He's at the top. He's just moved into this enormously beautiful house, Abbeville, the Jim Gandon Design Mansion, um, and he's put on trial. Uh, and the it would depend on the judge. Uh, the sentence, but he could have lost his liberty for anything up to I think ten years was the maximum, you know. And, and it would have finished his career. Oh, he was gone and and his life would have been, his liberty yeah. would have been lost. Yeah, yeah. And then there are questions about you know what would he do when he came out? Yeah, going back into politics like was pretty much that was gone. Uh, he could have went into business, of course, but yeah. So and that 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 interested me about the arms trial. As you mentioned, uh, how it affected high as a person, the uh, the whole arms trial. Do you think? It informed his character and his approach to politics, public life in general and everybody else. Do you think it affected him in that way that it might have refocused him or, or, or affected his character and how he would deal with people thereafter? I do. I do. I, I think it's a formative uh, event in his uh, in his life. I mean, his conduct during the trial is very interesting. He's uh, very clipped. His answers are short to the point. Um, he takes a different tack to the other three defendants. Should be pointed out too, sorry, just to... As you said, he's an accountant. He also qualified as a barrister. Oh, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. He did a barrister. Yeah, he did a barrister degree by by night. He qualified in nineteen forty nine, I think. Um, so he had some legal training. Um, and he was friendly with a lot of people at the bar. Uh, I mean, there's a famous party in his house tonight. He's acquitted uh, with the sort of great and the good of Irish society rocking up. Um, but very quickly, you know, he finds himself isolated in Fianna Fáil. He had called basically for Lynch to consider his position in the uh, uh, in the press conference in the four courts after after his acquittal. He's acquitted on a Friday afternoon. Jury takes only about two hours to acquit him and his fellow defendants. Um, but Lynch doesn't resign and the cabinet rallies around Lynch. Uh and how he is then left isolated. Kevin Boland sets up a, a new party. Uh, Neil Blaney would eventually resign and form independent Fianna Fáil. Boland wants Hockey and Blaney to join in this new party. Hockey considers it but dismisses it very quickly because he knew Fianna Fáil was bigger than him uh, and that he wanted to be Taoiseach, he had to be in Fianna Fáil. Uh, there's a terrible crisis uh, of conscience uh, when uh, Lynch forces a vote of confidence in Jim Gibbons after Fianna Gael had threatened a vote of no confidence and Hockey is, is basically forced um, and Gibbons, he had no time for Gibbons. Uh, he again thought Gibbons was his intellectual uh, inferior and wasn't really up to very, very much. Uh, and uh, But he votes confidence in Gibbons the following year, 72, and uh, and this, you know, Harry Boland famously told the, the Miriam O'Callaghan, Steve Carson, Mint, Productions documentary in two thousand and five, you know that this was his lowest point in 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 his relationship with hockey on the grounds that you know hockey basically swallowed uh, his pride and much else beside him voting with uh, with Gibbons. But again, it's I I I write in the book that how he was able to compartmentalize a lot, and that's what he did in that occasion. Um, he's brought back to the front bench in seventy five. Uh, he's very popular with the backbenchers. He goes around the country, uh, as we know. The great irony, of course, is how he would never have considered leaving anyone from Fianna Fáil speak in his constituency. Uh, but this didn't stop him travelling the country. Um, and he uh, he has backbench back uh, significant support. He's brought back to the front bench. But certainly, 
the arms trial uh, and his sort of, the impact it had on him as a person uh, was, I think, extremely uh, important. Um, he realised also again the importance of backbenchers, which become crucial in his his win in nineteen seventy nine against the party's uh, elite's preferred candidate George uh, Colley. Uh, and the seventies are are difficult for him. Although, as I write in the book, which I think people might be of interest, you know, he becomes a fundraiser. Interesting, giving his only for financial difficulties with the Central Remedial uh, Clinic. Um, an early version of the Garda Representative Association tried to hire him to to represent them in in their battles with the uh, with the commissioner and with the the the, the, the higher echelons of the uh, of the Gardaí. He he agrees to do this, but uh, the um, it doesn't get off the ground because the the super or the the, the commissioner uh, puts the kibosh on it, uh, so to speak. There's kind of a lot going on in his life, but certainly I think the ghost of the Armstrong, which is a section in the book, lived with hockey forever. Yeah. People were always writing to him about it. Uh, he famously never spoke about it to uh, uh, to even his family. Uh, the papers, which we have here in DCU on the Armstrong, most of them are sort of, you know, witness uh, statements and the like. Um, I mean, I, I outline his kind of strategy, uh, but, uh, you know, there is a memo that he, Vincent Brown, uh, the famous journalist came to see Hawhey when Hawhey was Minister for Health uh, uh, in 1978. And that that memo, which is about Peter Burry um, and what Lynch did or did not say to Burry when he met him, um, that was in his safe. Uh, Sean Hawhey gave me a copy of it. It's not uh, it's not available publicly in the archive here. It won't be. Um, so, but the, 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 the ghosts of the Armstrong live at Hawhey forevermore. And they do have a certain difficulty when he's Taoiseach uh, because many people thought he sh- the jury got it wrong. Uh, now, there, there might be some sort of class thing going on or, you know, if, if official Ireland again, sort of, you know, hockey. Um, and certainly the British were obviously always suspicious of him uh, for the very same reason that he had been accused of gun running. Yeah. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Um, and as you say, ultimately he reached his destination in 1979. December 79. Yeah, he took over from Lynch in... Uh, uh, an election victory where he sort of came from behind a couple of people switch most noticeably Michael O'Kennedy um, but he goes on then and, and becomes Taoiseach there are various heaves against him internally because mm. he always was a divisive figure into opposition then I suppose would it be fair to say that in the late 80s when he came back as Taoiseach in terms of uh, his achievements now some people will definitely argue that in, in, in straightening out the public finances, it was those who were most vulnerable were hurt. Mm. A theme that persists to this day at various junctures. Yep. But one way or the other, I think it could be fair to say that the, the, there was a change in the country's fortunes there that was not too dissimilar to the one that his father-in-law had initiated back in the early yeah. 60s. Yeah, I mean, he wins in 79. Uh, there's a very short election period called by Lynch to uh, facilitate George Colley. Uh, how he beats him 44 to 38 one or two people change their minds at the end with Kennedy most famously the party is constantly divided uh, over Hockey, you know to put it bluntly uh, people like Des O'Malley uh, 
Macaulay himself, uh, Seamus Brennan, they, they never accept Hockey uh, as the sort of democratically elected uh, leader. Then there's the Gareth Fitzgerald flawed pedigree thing. Um, so there's a, there's a lot going on. I mean, he's often accused of, you know, the famous we need to tighten our belt speech while he was living it up. Um, I, you know, and, and he's culpable there, but O'Malley and Collie refuse adamantly to have any reduction in their budget, in their departmental budgets, as I write about in the uh, in the book. You know, he's in and out of office. There's the whole goo between in 1982. Eventually, he's out of office in November 82. They lose the election um, after the Workers' Party withdraw their support in November of 82. And he's in a very lonely opposition. He hates being in opposition. He wants to be in power. He wants to get things done. In opposition, you know, he, he opposes the Anglo-Irish Agreement and critical of that, uh, although someone like Bertie Ahern would say that the Anglo-Irish Agreement wasn't as, wasn't as important as the sort of Downing Street Declaration later. But in 80, February 87, there's an election. The country is a basket case economically. We have huge interest rates. We have huge emigration. I mean, I, I went to UCC in 1987, basically because there was nothing else to do. Most of my friends for sort of from sort of inner city Cork uh, emigrated. Some would have went to the Cork RTC, a few of us went to UCC, uh, but very few of us went into jobs and just on Cork, you know, Fords had closed down, Dunlops had closed down, Apple hadn't come in yet, a very difficult period. Uh, and what he does is he, um, he regains international confidence in Ireland because international confidence, his view was we needed to regain that thing. And he does cut, you know, Fianna Fáil have health cuts hurt the old, the sick, the handicap as their famous slogan and then they do initiate a, a huge cost cutting, particularly in health. Beds are, are slashed and one might argue that that has never recovered uh, to this day, uh, public beds in uh, in public uh, hospitals. And on how he famously said that he didn't realise how deeply the cuts uh, had impacted with, with someone like Noel Dempsey was very, very critical of who was elected for, for the first time in, in 87 um, and who became one of the gang of four who ultimately led the heave that how he lost uh, power in 1992. Uh, but there are things like the IFSC He's close, obviously, to Dermot Desmond. Desmond, of course, had tried to hawk the IFSC to the uh, Fine Gael Labour government, uh, had met famously with Rory Quinn in uh, late 1986. That government wasn't interested. There's a dinner in Abbeville. Where I, I met Desmond. I interviewed him. He said, it was very interesting. How you said, you know, what, what's your solution to the problems? And they said, you know, you need to cut taxes, but you also need to cut public services. And how he says to him, well, that's easy for you to say in your... Uh, big beautiful house in Aylesbury Road uh, and uh, to the other people who were there at the time and Desmond told me that it was uh, he was very heartened to hear this that they weren't out how he wasn't just kind of nodding his head sycophantically or whatever because uh, he says you know how are people in Rohini and Drumcondra and you know uh, rural Kerry and wherever going to, going to cope but they do cut and it's a successful government and, and it does turn the economy. Social partnership is very important. I mean, we associate social partnership maybe with Bertie O'Hearn, how he drives it because uh, he, he's of the view you need the unions, you need the employers, you need the farmers. Community pillar. On, yeah, yeah, you need that like, to, for some sort of social uh, solidarity. And it's a successful government. He then ludicrously calls it an election in June 1989 I read about this in the book he's jet lagged he's sick um, there was uh, some so, some view that he called it because he needed money and obviously money flowed into him when there was an election but I, I don't give that as much credence as other people do he wanted an overall majority the polls were fantastic for Fianna Fáil they were nearly at 50% but Fianna Fáil always lost uh, votes or always lost percentage points in polls during an election campaign and by the election in June 89, of course, he doesn't get the majority and he's forced into coalition with uh, with Des O'Malley and the PDs. The last thing he 
wanted really although that government works yeah it did and as you say ultimately the past came back to haunt him very he, much he, so he, he had to resign but you could say that for a few years thereafter the divisions there had been about him fell away that there was a retrospective view I think forming that he had been uh, a, a very much a, a very positive influence and impact on modern Ireland that he'd had a long and ultimately redemptive career in terms of how he finished it then bang all of that was part of public Charlie we got a glimpse of private Charlie now I suppose when I say private Charlie some people might suggest that issues like his very long running affair with Terry Keane was uh, part of that but however I think in relation to everything else that fades into the background the big issue with private Charlie was it began to emerge the money the money all the way back into the uh, 60s and and people reassessed the idea if you go back to the 60s his selling of the house in Rahini the rezoning of land uh, his purchase of Abbeville everything his purchase of Grangemore before that Grangemore before that everything came under the microscope and there's no doubt Gary that what ultimately emerged from that we have the the, the tribunal uh, that ultimately says he got eight million, which no, nine, I think, nine, nine million, million close to nine, million, yeah, 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 yeah. which in, in today's money you could be talking tens of millions. You could, yeah. Um, and I think it was Bertie Hearn famously said, "What do you need nine million for?" Which yeah, really? is a very <laughs> good way of putting the most of us would. But what it did was, and it should be said that there wasn't many specific connections made in relation mm. to what he might have done for people. There was the famous one with Ben Dunn. Who gave him two or three million? I think three million. Three million, yeah, million. Yeah. and 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 that he made representations for the revenue for Dunn. He could claim, even though people would find it very difficult to take on board, that he'd have made those kind of representations yeah. for anyone else in the same situation. Yeah. So there was no direct bribery, as we know it. Yeah, However, yeah. I think there is the massive issue over him. A, what it says about his politics and how he did things, yeah. and B, the damage. That was done when somebody as dominant to that was taking so much money. And then we subsequently saw that others who worked under him also were yeah. taking money. And how responsible was he? The damage to the body politics. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so, so how he resigns in um, February 1992 as Taoiseach. He's forced out in a power play, basically. Uh, Albert Reynolds takes over and then Reynolds, of course, has his famous Night of the Long Nights where he sacks half of Hockey's over half of Hockey's uh, cabinet a, a complete break with the uh, with the past the Sean Doherty tapes um, are, the, the phone tapping on, on Bruce Arnold and Geraldine Kennedy is the sort of the catalyst for this uh, Hockey consistently said he knew nothing about it uh, and Doherty was the one who changed his, his story um, most people tend to believe uh, Doherty I, I, I try to present the Hockey defence so called um, that he knew nothing about it uh, and people close to how he said that he was very deeply traumatised uh, when the, the phone tapping emerged uh, in 82, in the first instance, when it was revealed um, that Doherty had tapped the phones of Kennedy and Arnold. So he he resigns and his retirement is relatively sedate. You know, horse racing was always a great passion of his and sailing. He engages in that. He, his number of grandchildren are born, and you know. He enjoys their company. Uh, he's living in a beautiful house. Uh, he's for, and, and, you know, he, he's on the Late Late Show with Pat Kenny and he gets a huge uh, reception. Uh, his horse, Flashing Steel, wins the Grand National. And again, you know, he's just kind of fated. Uh, and then it all comes crashing down. Margaret Heffernan arrives at his house one day uh, demanding the money back. 
uh, terrible shock that at her him. brother Ben Dunn because she Ben Dunn gave Hockey money and she said that Dunn didn't have the right to give Hockey that money because it was Dunn Store's money as yeah. his thing from personal money from, from Ben Dunn uh, Hockey never thought that any of this would emerge and that is a fatal flaw um, in his thinking and of course it does emerge and he has been ruined uh, basically because First of all, we have the Buchanan report and Gerald Buchanan was a classmate of how he's at the bar for 40 years, uh, 1949, um, close to 50 years earlier. Uh, the McCracken Tribunal is very damning of how he, and then Moriarty starts really, really, you know, pouring over literally detail, e yeah. e everything. And, uh, and what Moriarty finds later on in a very damning critique is that how there was three he finds three elements. He doesn't call it corruption, but basically where Hockey interfered with uh, uh, with public policy that had an impact on the uh, on, on the state and benefited those involved. And one of them was to do with Ben Dunn, where Hockey introduced the chairman of the revenue, Seamus Park here, uh, to Ben Dunn. Now, Nulo Fuelon wrote a very famous piece in the Irish Times that Hockey was forever interfering and telling people that he, he did it because... He, he thought people should know that when they voted for politicians, politicians were able to do this uh, for them. The interesting thing was that the uh, the Dunn's tax uh, bill was reduced and then, of course, the taxing master uh, wiped off the bill completely. There didn't be any tax. Um, but, you know, and Hockey is dead, of course, in 2006. He dies in 2006. He is dead when the Moriarty Tribunal uh, reports. I mean, there have been some criticisms of, of my work that I spend more time on the Hockey family's uh, rebuttal of Moriarty than on Moriarty itself, but, you know, be that as it, as it may. Uh, Hockey was, and it goes back to the 60s, Hockey hires this trainer uh, to be an article clerk in Hockey Boland. Uh, and then he said in the tribunals that he passed over all dealings financially to uh, to a trainer. Trainer was dead by that. Trainer dead by that course, stage, yeah. uh, and that he then lived the life uh, without knowing the ins and outs of, of his finances. Which is very hard. Very to difficult. Be. And we know, and Colin Keane has showed it in his very good book, Hockey's Millions, maybe two decades ago now, we know that Hockey had a very aggressive meeting with AIB in the 1970s where he told them he could be a very difficult uh, opponent. AIB were looking to take his checkbook off him. And unlike now, checkbook was how Hockey lived. Hockey wrote the checks for the paintings in his house. He wrote the checks for the wine uh, and the bank kept cashing those checks. So when the bank threatened to take his checkbook off him, you know, that was like ruination. Um, they didn't. Uh, I mean, he's £600,000 in debt in 1974 to AIB. He's also in debt to uh, a bank called the Northern Bank, I think it's called. I mean, maybe, anyway, but he's in debt and, and he's, and trainer is moving money around, certainly. And of course, money ends up in the Ansbacker account, sure which is terrible, you know. Uh, tax is, uh, evasion. Tax, oh, completely. Yeah. I mean, how he is guilty of that and I don't, I don't show yeah, yeah. that in the book. But he buys in his fickle on for £25,000. The, the, the famous, or it's famous, no, it wasn't famous then. Uh, for £25,000, this you know island off the coast of the Blaskets, uh, off the coast of Kerry, uh, he's six hundred thousand pounds in debt when he's spending twenty five thousand pounds. I mean, and it strikes me, you know, there's a bit of a kink there 
somewhere, you know, that, that one one does this because... Or know, is there confidence that there'll be more of where that money came well, from? Well, probably, yeah, you know, but it, it's a bit odder that you would be so much in debt that never unless you would buy. And, you know, it was a column Tobin in his review say, you know, Murphy loses the run of himself when I say Inis Fickleon is the one place how he could start to be himself. But I but I think it was. Uh, you know, he didn't have people then looking for things off of him or whatever. Um, and he was a sort of a melancholy character at times. I mean, he, we talked about his self-confidence. He didn't have tremendous uh, introspection in terms of his public policy decisions but he was riven by by, by, by various doubts uh, and of course he was then carrying on also this long-standing affair with the, the socialite uh, come uh, media uh, columnist uh, uh, Terry Keane but, uh, but on the money it ruins him. I mean, he lives the last few years of his life uh, almost a recluse uh, in Abbeville. He's 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 diagnosed with uh, with cancer in 1994, and I write about his various illnesses. At the end, uh, the cancer eventually kills him in uh, in June of 2006. Uh, but it was a very difficult period of him because the tribunal started investigating, and and a lot of people would know obviously about the Brian Lenehan. Uh, fund how he initiated a fund for Lenihan to his very close friend uh, ran in the 1990 presidential election and there's that famous photograph in the book uh, of Mary Robinson being uh, inaugurated and Hockey and Lenin looking grim faced uh, yeah. to put it mildly uh, behind her and um, and certainly more money was gained where more money was taken in than was spent on Lenihan the Lenihans always said that they were happy with the treatment Brian Lenihan I think got. they made a point at high funeral that um, well, Brian, Brian Jr. was Brian Jr. God gave, rest him gave yeah. a uh, uh, gave one of the uh, one of the readings, of the readings. Yeah. and Conor Lenihan in his book of 2015 Hockey Prince of Power uh, you know he, he has no complaints Uh but certainly the Moriarty Tribunal was scathing of that and public opinion was scathing. Hockey in the Tribunal, uh, the one time he gets really upset and he, he, he does it kind of a, he follows his normal, well, normal routine. He follows the routine of the arms trial. His answers are short and they're clipped, uh, you know, and he says he can't remember a lot. But the one time he gets really angry with Moriarty uh, and the Tribunal lawyers is uh, on Lenehan. And he says, you know, I can't remember, but you're accusing me, you know, of, you know, doing wrong to my closest friend of 40 years. And he gets emotional and upset. Now, people say you know, Murphy's far too sort of soft and haughty, but he really was upset on that day. Well, I suppose his way of looking at it, and it, personally I find it warped, but understandable, yeah. is that the money that was required to do the operation for Brian Came in. went to yeah. the operation yeah. and he took some of what was left over. He took all of it back. All of yeah, what was yeah, left yeah, over. Exactly, and, yeah. and, you know, people can take that whatever way they like. I mean, I think people would look at it in a very poor fashion, but perhaps he's looking at it as in he didn't rob his friend of anything. Oh, very much so. But that's like, pretty uh, self-serving yeah, as well. Like. Oh, very much so. And, and I'm not uncritical of yeah. how he and, and the money in that, that regard. And uh, yeah, but but Lenin did get his operation, and you know it did extend his life. He died in nineteen ninety five, I think. Yeah, uh, and the Lenins have never complained about Hockey uh, subsequently. And obviously, Sean Hockey and Brian Lenin served, and Connor Lenin served under Bertie O'Hearn. Um, but like, there's no getting away from it. The the, the money ruined him at the end. It, yeah. And one thing that would strike me about it, Gary, and one way it ruined his legacy, I would suggest, mm. is. Hockey always presented himself as, as a man of the people. He had the common touch. Yeah. He came from a very ordinary background himself, which obviously all fit into that. Yet, if he was, as most certainly was the conclusion of Moriarty, mm. taking very large sums of money from wealthy people. Yeah, as if it was his right. As if it was his right. And irrespective of anything else, 
how could he not subconsciously at the very least, we know that feeds into things, be beholden to that class of people, particularly in terms of how he conducted his politics? Yeah, no, that's a very fair point and that's something I grappled with. And I write in the very last page of this book um, about sort of the, the myths and contradictions uh, in the in the Hohe legacy. Uh, and I write about the sort of the humanity of him with his constituencies up against the sort of the person who took the money of the Ireland's elite as if it was his, his right or, or his or his due. Um, what I do think, I did have this unique ability to compartmentalise parts of his of his life. And he, as he said to the Moriarty Tribunal, and as his family insisted it to stay, and as someone like Charlie McCreevy told me, I interviewed McCreevy out in the Glen Royal Hotel in Minute a couple of years ago, and we got talking, and McCreevy, of course, had a complex relationship with Hockey. He, was, he had a heave against him yeah. in AC2, but then they become relatively close friends, and they have horse racing in, in, in common, for instance, um, and McCreevy's offering him an advice in the, in the late 80s about all sorts of things, including, you know, elections and uh, public policy, and, but the money came up, and I asked uh, I asked about corruption and depending on the question you just posed to me Mick, about how he being beholden to people and he guffawed it tremendously loudly so loudly that people started looking over at us and he said how he would have told uh, anyone who said here's a million uh and I wanted to do this for me. He would have told him to f off. Yeah, but that's but not specifically that's not the, specifically the yeah, point. I, yeah. I, I take and I take your point. It's it's an implicit thing, um, and yeah, and you know, the wealthy do on do well under hockey in the um, in the, the start of eighty seven ninety two uh, period. Dermot Desmond's IFSC does very well, but you know, Desmond had that idea for a long time, and it was hockey had uh, had run with it, and uh, yeah, I you know, but but the evidence isn't there. No, there's no specific evidence. No, there's no, no. but that's not to say... That's not to say it no, couldn't I mean, form... And, and, and as certainly you said, it, uh, and it's a matter of public record, how he is not the only one in his governments to be yeah. receiving large amounts and, of... And that again goes back to, if he hadn't been at it, would the others have been at it? But then that's a, a separate issue. One but other it's a, thing... But it's, a, but it's a tricky business to kind of get, and I, 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 and I suppose I, I became, because I lived at Hockey for so long, um, I, I've been working this book for like seven or eight years, I did other things in the, obviously during the same time, um, but I, I became, I kind of, Got the got the feel about how we thought about things. Does that yeah. make sense? Oh, I'm sure, and it, that comes across in the book, Gary. I have to say, um, one thing that struck me about it, and I I find it somewhat tragic because he's, he was obviously quite brilliant, mm. irrespective of their aspects of his personality yeah. that uh, were distasteful, perhaps, and what have you, and his relations with various people, and how he treated people, irrespective of all that. As a public figure, somebody obsessed with politics, and ultimately, whatever we think of politicians. There's a core there in terms of they're trying to better things for a country or a people. Mm. And he had all that. And ultimately, for the other stuff to be there, I, I think it's tragic, but it definitely, to me, defined a huge part of his personality. What I wonder about it, though, is if you go back to his early um, times, mm. and quite obviously, as we saw, a, a brilliant individual uh, set up an accountancy firm, early qualified as a barrister. Quite obviously, somebody in a country that was relatively poor, that had he wished, could have gone into business. And yeah. I think particularly of perhaps a near contemporary of his, Tony O'Reilly, mm. somebody who could have gone into business, who could have become fabulously wealthy and become part of that elite. Mm. Um that that was one route that he could have gone. But mm. because he was obsessed with politics, he wanted to go into politics. But he also wanted the wealthy stuff. Oh, he did. And, and to me, that idea that the big centrality of his personality was being unable 
to choose yeah. between the two of those. Yeah, that, I, I, I would agree with that, Mick. Uh, he wanted power. He thought power was best, could best be gained through politics. Uh, he wanted to be Taoiseach. Uh, you know, he was ruthless uh, in uh, in per- certain parts of the decisions he took in, in Fianna Fáil and in public uh, policy. He wanted the wealth. He loved the lifestyle. He loved sailing. He loved owning horses. He loved owning an island. Uh, he didn't have the money for any of this. The money was given And he to him. could have had the money if he'd stayed out of politics. He's friendly with O'Reilly in the early 60s. I mean, I write about this in the book. Other people have written about it. Matt Cooper in his uh, his book on O'Reilly, The Maximalist and others. I mean, they had a holiday together um, in the early 60s. And, um, you know, there's uh, various business dealings about Heinz and whatnot. Um, and I write about that. And, uh, and O'Reilly... Again, there some similarities there, certainly. Uh, but how he was brilliant and he was innovative and he was radical. Um, and there is this kink there, though, as I do use that word. Uh, uh, he wanted the trappings of extraordinary wealth when he didn't have it, but he continued to live as if he had it. And the great tragedy for him uh, is that all this was exposed and and ruins him. I mean, my book, I'm not trying to rehabilitate Hockey in this book, uh, but I'm trying to lay out the evidence as best it is. And I, I, I treat my readers uh, maturely and they can make up their own minds. Um, but when I when I assess him, I do make the point that there are these contradictions uh, which define him uh, very much so. And, and unfortunately for him, he dies in disgrace. And the 15 years... 15 and a half years now, December 21, he dies in June 06, haven't been any kinder to him. No. Um, in fact, they have, uh, although the book is doing relatively well, so I think there are lots of people are interested oh, inter- in him. Absolutely, you he's know, a huge figure. Uh, there's a huge figure. He's a figure who dominates Fianna Fáil. He dominates maybe the Ireland of the, from the 60s to the to the 90s. Um, there are ups and there are there are downs. It's kind of Shakespearean. I, I quote Shakespeare a little bit in this and how he was fond of quoting Shakespeare uh, himself and of course there was the Terry Keane thing when that was exposed and again how he'd never thought that would be exposed and I write about this in the book I, I'm more interested in the sort of the public thing rather than their, what they got up to in private it was very difficult for him and his family uh, for Maureen certainly and, and for his children and it was difficult for, for her although she was the one who revealed it on the Late Late Show in 1999 when Heidi then went out for dinner with Maureen and their friends without telling her and that, that's a very bad black mark against him Um. And I don't mind saying it. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's a life of ambiguity, of complexity, uh, of extraordinary, I think, achievements, but of bitter failures and, you know, and failings, moral failings, one might say, without being too judgmental about it, because, you know, God knows we all have failings ourselves. Yeah, um, I would suggest, Gary, that in terms of certainly the latter half of the century in, in this country, he was two things. One the most corrupt politician we had, and secondly, the one with the greatest ability. And that is maybe the, the great Shakespearean tragedy in it, that a man of such gifts, I mean, uh, even intellectually, even from that young age, coming first to 500, you know, you're obviously very, very smart, getting to UCD and even getting to the King's Inns, uh, coming from Belton Park, very few from that part of the city uh, would have, and you know, and they, they were they were looked down upon. He was looked down upon a little bit in UCD by those who weren't on scholarships, corporation scholarships, uh, and again making his way in the fifties and the late. I, I write about this. You know, Dublin was poor. Uh, the the business class was sort of insular, and he broke into that. 
uh, with Hockey Bowling and they do relatively well they do very well um, then he, he leaves the practice when he becomes a minister and he writes some very angry letters uh, to people in the 60s who accuse him of all sorts of things so he that, said, yeah. yeah he said well, well you know I'm not part of this anymore and uh, how how dare you um, but uh, and that whiff of sulphur was around him even before the arms trial you know and, and I think why the life is so extraordinary is that you know he was put on trial maybe the most historic trial in the history of the state and yeah and his legacy is uh, it hasn't improved and I'm not sure this book will improve it either but what this book sets out I think is, is the full life and I think I think it achieves it, Gary. I have to say, um, thanks so much. I think it's a serious, serious study, and I think there's a lot of balance. And I know there's been some criticism that perhaps you went easy on him on the money, but then perhaps people are coming from various well, positions. I, well, I I I try to make the point of of compartmentalisation, you know, and uh, and when I, I I've lived with Hahi, I started this book in sort of January 2014. I interviewed Morning Hahi and Owen Hahi, uh, you know, and I I try to interview people who are getting on in age they're both dead now as are some of my other interviewees I interviewed a guy called Paddy Terry just at the beginning of the pandemic uh, who was 100 um, and who sadly has died since you know PJ Mara um, and um, so I've lived with him a long time uh, I'm happy to see it published yeah. as my publishers are <laughs> uh, but but the point is you know I uh, I can see how he compartmentalised mm. um, Bill Clinton was famous for that famous, famous for that and you know and and I like no more than yourself or any of us. Uh, I was talking to Eamon Dunphy about this recently, very famous biographer, of course. Uh, of, um, and uh, we, you know, my view is you put out your work into the bear pit, you, you take your chance. Oh, yeah, I, and, and I'm not one to criticize my, my reviewers. No, no, I've written no more. I've written, you know, uh, bad reviews of other people's books. So and it is been, as it is. Th- th- there has been some glowing reviews as well. Has, yeah. One postscript, and it's not to do with Hahi specifically, but I think it's very much resonates with where we're at today, which I found fascinating, I have to say. Um, and I, t- I have to say, it's a thoroughly enjoyable read, an absorbing read as much as anything. But one tiny thing I found fascinating was when Hahi was very prominent in Fianna Fáil in the early 60s, and there was a gentleman, I think he was Desmond McCreevy's name, he may have been a party employee, he, he was asked to do a study. He was in PR. He was in PR. Yeah, yeah. He was asked to do a study of Fianna Fáil to find out in terms of the, how the public regarded them and what exactly they stood for. And he came back with, I'd say, the, the, the answer that a study today <laughs> in particular will come back with, and that is that people are not very sure what it stands for. The Revolutionary Guard were dying out and uh, what was left. Yeah, that's a, that's a fact. When I read that document, I was fascinated uh, by it. And of course, there was great fears in Fianna Fáil that uh, went Dev left, uh, that the party would sort of disintegrate. No, that didn't happen because Fianna Fáil had had roots in, in all parts of Ireland from the, the revolutionary uh, generation. For Hockey, Fianna Fáil was, and he says this in Sean O'Mora's Seven Ages, although he was very upset when O'Mora's people asked him about the, the money. And you can see that on the on the documentary. Uh, he said that for him, Fianna Fáil was the vehicle which allowed people to vote for a party who would put ordinary people first and try to do things like free education, which uh, he was tangential to. Don O'Malley famously in the in the late sixties, um, later free travel. Um, but it was the sort of the aspirational sort of working class and middle class would 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 enable him to 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 get on in uh, in life. And and how he was. 
on his economics. I mean, how he believed in the power of the state. He believed that the state could do things. He wasn't leaving everything to the to the market. I mean, he so you know, although his father was a Collins man, I mean. Uh, you know, and again, we shouldn't be painting Fianna Gael as, like, I don't think we should be a sort of crazy neoliberals. Um, but uh, Fianna Fáil was the party of the working man, the party, but also the party of the state um, and that the state could do things. The state could be an engineer of growth. I mean, I quote um, some documents I found in his archive, essays he wrote when he was a student in UCD, basically talking of the power of the state. I mean, how he was friendly and venerated entrepreneurs. He realised that entrepreneurs were needed uh, for the state to to succeed. That explains his friendship with, with Desmond and others. Uh, but he thought that Fianna Fáil, um, yeah, was the party of social uh, and economic uh, progress. Something his... Uh, his successor as leader, uh, no, Michal Martin ha- has talked for a long time about. But the problem is, for Fianna Fáil, no, of course, is that, uh, you know, the people, they don't want to look to the past, they want to look to the future. And as you wrote uh, in your uh, examiner column this week, uh, you know, they're not satisfied both uh, what Fianna Fáil has done in housing and, uh, and health. And uh, there are other people offering what seem better alternatives. But I, I say this, I said it on TV in 2011, during the 2011 election, when people said, this is the end of Fianna Fáil. And I said, I wouldn't write them off yet when they did disastrously under, well, under Michal Martin had just taken over in the worst of circumstances, as you know. Uh, and I wouldn't write them off uh, just yet. No, but it, it, it it's is... Difficult, it, 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 it's difficult. It's difficult. And wh- what's interesting, what's a lot seems to have changed in terms of the political firmament. Mm. But those questions... Still that remain were being posed in the early sixties about the party. And just to finish on this point, uh, Mick, perhaps uh, hockey would be outraged. He'd be appalled to see Fianna Fáil a in government with Fianna Gael, but b um, to see their standing in the in the polls and at election time of you know anywhere between fourteen and twenty percent. I mean, hockey always got over forty percent. Yeah, for instance. Gary Murphy, Hahi is the book. I have to say, as I said, an absorbing read, something I'd recommend to anybody. Thanks very much for talking to us today, Gary. Thank you, Mick. That's it for today, folks. The book is simply called Hahi and it's published by Gill Books. I'd like to thank Gary Murphy for today and our engineer, JJ Vernon, who has been ever-present throughout the year. Thanks to everybody who listened in this year and tell your friends and family what they're missing. It's been a tough year for many, And let's just hope that collectively we can get through this thing and that the new year will brighten up early enough. Go easy and we'll talk soon. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.